0: Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Hope this finds you doing well. Just a reminder that this is a twice monthly podcast released on the 15th and the 30th. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Patreon, or you can also do a one-time donation on our website. Thank you for listening and telling others about our podcast. Please join us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Brenda F. in Fort Worth, Texas. Candy S. in Los Angeles, California, and Christine S. in Port Huron, Michigan. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we are all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, The Gallery is offering our listeners 15% off their purchase by using the code 15OFF. Go to thegallery.com, that's T-H-E-G-A-L-R-Y dot com, so your wall will never be boring again. June 4th, 2007, Puyallup, Washington. A heavy equipment operator was working on the property of an old yellow house that had been falling into disrepair. It had been empty for quite a while, and he was starting the steps of demolishing the old farmhouse when up comes a ragged black trash bag with bones and fabric in it. Police were called, of course. It was eventually determined to be the bones of a human being. One of the former owners of the property on Canyon Road came by and said they had been renting it out since the 70s. They had lived there until 1973 and started renting it out to other families in 1974. Since then, there had been a lot of rentals. That would be a lot of people to go through and interview for the investigators. The guy that lived next door came by and said he moved there in 1995, and as far as he knew, no one had been living there since then. A former tenant who had rented there said her dog sometimes dug up bones, but she had thrown them out thinking they were animal bones. They had lived there from 1985 to 1995. News footage showed crime scene techs using a large sifter with dirt being poured on top to find all of the bones and fragments. Fifty-one bones were found, all belonging to the same person. Because it was reported that it was just bones that were found, people started to show up at the site wondering if it could be their missing loved ones long since disappeared. They were able to determine that the body was of a male in his mid-fifties, No flesh on the bones, so they couldn't determine cause of death, but all signs pointed to homicide. The body had been dismembered. There were clean cuts across the bones. A chainsaw had been used. The shoulder had been cut in two with a quarter-inch blade consistent with a chainsaw. The forensic anthropologist determined the body had been buried for about 30 years. The owner of the house told them about a woman who had come many years ago looking for her father. She said as far as she knows, he had been last seen on this property, and she was given permission to walk around and see whatever she could see. A detective in the county next to them saw the news report and thought it might match up to a missing person case she had. Jan Rhodes called the police officers working the case where the bones were found. She was the missing reports coordinator for the King County Sheriff's Department. The missing man was Joseph Terraconi. His daughter was Gina Terraconi, who had come looking for him, since he had not been in contact with her and her sister. She insisted on filing a missing persons case at the time. The missing persons report filed in 1979 had a blurred photo of him in the old file. Joseph Anthony terricone would have been 53 in 1978. Six foot one inch, 200 plus pounds, brown eyes and graying black hair, partially balding. Joseph's ex-wife Rose and Gina's five siblings lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time. He had not contacted any of his family members, including his elderly parents, for four months. The last time anyone saw him, he was visiting his girlfriend Renee in Puyallup, Washington. A phone number was in the report. He was listed as having a business in Anchorage, Alaska. Gina had said in the report that they had called her father's girlfriend, but Renee had said she had no idea where Joe had gone. The girlfriend's name was Renee Curtis. Jerry Hess had been the renter of the house in 1978, and detectives thought that maybe her older daughter, Renee, had been the one that had dated Joe. The detectives figured that that young woman would be in her 50s in 2007 if she was still alive. It had been nearly three decades. The detectives checked death records and found that Jerry Hess had died in 2000. Jerry, Renee's mother, had married a few times and had the different last names of Curtis, Nataro, and Hess. Joseph Anthony Tarricone came from Brooklyn, New York. His parents stayed there, but Joe did not. He always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Even though he didn't live in New York, Joe kept in frequent touch with his parents, to the point his wife had to tell him the phone bills were too expensive. He told her that he would never put a time limit on his phone calls with his parents. Joe met Rose in the early 40s when they were in their teens. They were a good-looking couple. Joe served in World War II in the Army. He was a natural salesman. He had quite a few sales jobs. He also had a wanderlust. Rose did not like all the moving they did. They moved to Florida, New Mexico, Texas, the Pacific Northwest. Claire, the oldest, was born in 1947, Aldo in November 1950, Joey in 1952, Gypsy in 1957, Gina in 1960, Rosemary in 1963, and Dean, the baby, in 1966 seven children and all that moving. Joe was a good father and often played with the kids when he was home. When they were little babies, he walked around with them, soothing them. When they were old enough to play in the neighborhood, he was outside playing with them and the neighborhood kids. They lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico longer than any of the other places, and they made friends with other families there. It was there Rose decided to stay. They had moved on from Albuquerque, and Joe had other businesses in other states, but they had moved back. When Joe told her he wanted to move again from Albuquerque, she said no. She wanted to stay in that home in New Mexico. The marriage ended in 1976. Joe had gone on to Texas thinking Rose would change her mind and move with him, but she had had enough of moving. Joe and Rose still had younger kids at home, and Joe sent checks to help pay for their support, and extra for school clothes. Gina was 16, Rosemary 13, and Dean was 10. Rose looked for the check in the fall of 1978, but there was nothing for the kids for school supplies and clothes. There was no monthly support check, and there was no support check the next month either. His daughter said her dad became sort of lost after the divorce and started dating a series of younger women. Renee Curtis was one of them. She was a receptionist at his company and an attractive younger woman. Joe took to her right away. His daughter was sure that Renee was only using her dad for his money, and she tried to tell him this. Her dad wasn't listening to any of it. Renee and Joe started dating, but it wasn't long before she was dating someone else at the time. His name was Kurt Vinkler. He also appeared to have money. Kurt was gone a lot for his job, as long as 13 or 14 weeks at a time. Joe also traveled for his job. She was able to keep the two separate due to the traveling. They had been dating a couple of weeks when Renee decided to leave Anchorage and fly to Seattle area to move in with her mother on Canyon Road. Her mother did not like the relationship she had with the older man. Joe flew to the Seattle area twice a month to see Renee and would see his daughter Gina when he was in town. The last time Gina saw him was during one of those visits in July of 1978. After that visit when she called his home and his phone would just ring. She got more concerned as time went on. His daughters, Gina and Gypsy, got together to see authorities about this. In August of 1978, authorities went to visit the house on Canyon and talked to Renee and her mother, Geraldine. They told the police that they hadn't seen him in weeks. They said the last visit with Joe wasn't good. Joe had bought tickets to Rome and wanted Renee to go off and marry him. According to Renee, she had said no, and Joe had left in a mad fury. Joe's daughters did not believe that story. When investigators found Gypsy, they asked her about the house on Canyon Road. She confirmed she was the same woman who had talked to the owner about the house years earlier as she was looking for her father. They got a DNA sample from Gypsy and were able to confirm it was Joe Terracone's remains that were found. After talking to Gina, they understood that the sisters thought Renee was a suspect in their father's murder. They ran a background check on Renee and found that she was living in Seattle. They didn't find any red flags, though, at the time. Geraldine Hess, Renee's mother, had died several years earlier. They found Renee also had adopted brother named Nick Nataro. They ran a background check on him, and he had done time in prison for killing someone in Alaska in the 70s. They found out he had murdered his wife in 1978 in Fairbanks. He had shot and killed her. There was a period of time in between when Nick had killed his wife and when he was arrested for the murder, During that time, he had flown to Seattle and went to the house on Canyon Road to stay with his mother and sister. There were photocopies of the items he had on him when he was arrested. One was of an airplane ticket that put him in the Seattle area in 1978 at the same time that Joe went missing. They talked to Nick. He told them he had shot and killed his wife because he thought she was cheating on him. He had found men's clothing in their trailer. They asked him about the case of joe's murder and he told them that he had gotten the job in alaska from renee's boyfriend at the time joe terracone after talking to the investigators for a while nick told them his mother geraldine hess shot and killed joe he told them that joe wouldn't leave renee alone he was always coming to visit trying to get renee to sleep with him trying to get her to marry him geraldine decided to solve the problem once and for all by killing him he said she put him in the freezer in the basement in the house and pulley up chopped him up with a chainsaw, and buried him in the backyard. They knew that Joe had been too heavy for Geraldine to pick up and take downstairs. They told him that they believed he and his sister had to have something to do with it because his mother could not have done it all by herself. He told them that his sister had nothing to do with it whatsoever. He then told them he was the one that shot Joe. The investigators asked him to tell them exactly how the murder went down. He said that he had told Joe there was a problem with the washing machine and asked Joe to come downstairs to the basement to look at it. When Joe was bending down to look in the washing machine, Nick came up behind him and shot him. At one point in the story, he told them, we went to the store to buy the chainsaw. They pointed out to him that he said we. They asked him who went with him. He told them that he did not remember. He did not say it was his mom, just that he couldn't remember who it was. He told them Renee was living in Hawaii at the time. He then said that he and his mother dismembered Joe in the basement and he buried him in the backyard. Nick was arrested. Gypsy said she didn't think that Nick had the mental capability to do this on his own. She did believe he would do it if ordered by his sister. They couldn't figure out what motive Nick would have to kill Joe unless Renee, who was just 25 at the time, had put her up to it. When Renee was interviewed and told that her brother had been arrested for Joe's murder, she told them that she received a call one night to come home right away, and she did. She was taken downstairs. She saw Joe there dead. She asked the investigators if she should get an attorney, and they told her it was her right, and she should if she thought she needed it. They told her that if all she did was render help after the murder, as in getting rid of the body, or helping to get rid of the body, the Statue of Limitations had run out on that, so they couldn't arrest her for that. However, they could if she was an accomplice. She felt comfortable enough to go on to tell them more details. She told them they locked up the door to the basement and went upstairs to talk. They talked about how to get rid of the body. She said they were going to bury him. They asked her who dug the hole. She said Nicholas did. They then said to her, prior to that, you and Nicholas went somewhere. Where did you go? She told them they had gone to a hardware store to purchase a chainsaw. They asked her detailed questions about the dismemberment and the mess it made. She answered all of their questions. When they asked how Nicholas came to do this in the first place, she told them that she had told Nicholas about the problem she had been having with Joe. She went on to say that she had asked Nicholas to come down to Seattle and take care of Joe. She was talking to someone who she knew had just committed a murder and she was asking him to come and take care of someone for her. She knew exactly what she was asking him to do. You have to wonder if after all those years, almost 30, that she had thought she had gotten away with murder, that it would never catch up to her. And then it did. This case is featured in Ann Rule's book, Don't Look Behind You, which of course I highly recommend. I highly recommend all of Ann Rule's books. In her book, Anne writes about studies that Dr. Benjamin Spock did. He found that attractive women who exhibit sociopathic tendencies are quite good at manipulating men, but most women can see through them. The reverse is true as well. Attractive men that exhibit sociopathic tendencies are quite good at manipulating women, but most men can see what their real motives are. Nick's trial started February 12, 2009, Gypsy, Dean, and Rosemary were in the court and saw the whole thing. They felt somewhat sad for Nick. They felt he was partially mentally disabled and had been used by Renee, that he was just a pawn. He was found guilty of first degree murder. His sentencing was to be after Renee's trial. Renee's trial began in March almost a year after she had been arrested. Renee was still free on bail, and she dressed in fashionable clothing with hair and makeup done. She was able to be at home each evening. Gypsy, Dean, Rosemary, and occasionally other family members all attended the trial. Renee testified in her own trial, which is something that most defense attorneys will caution you against. Her effect was flat and she came off as almost disinterested during some of her answers. There were no tears and no bursts of emotion. On the stand, Renee took back what she had told the detectives about knowing that her brother killed his wife before he flew out to Seattle for her. She said she didn't even learn about him killing his wife until after she found out that Joe was dead. She claimed that she learned about this after her mother had called her to come home. She saw Joe was dead and they were in the kitchen talking about what to do with the body. In cross-examination, she said she could not remember meeting Joe's daughters or talking to them on the phone. She admitted that the only time Nick Nataro, her brother, had been to the Canyon Road house was when Joe was killed. She was asked if she told the detectives not once, but twice, that she had learned over the phone that Nick had killed his wife in Alaska. She said she remembered telling them once, but that she had corrected herself later. She mostly said she could not remember, to many of the questions asked. She admitted the many lies, such as the one about Joe coming to the house with tickets to Italy that never happened. The only emotion she showed the whole trial was irritation at the many questions that were asked her. Renee Curtis was sentenced to 40 years to life for first-degree murder. Her brother was sentenced to the same. Gina and Gypsy had said that they always knew who killed their father, but they didn't know where he was or how they could prove it. Renee Curtis was 55 years old in 2009 when she was sentenced to life for the murder and dismemberment of Joseph Terraconi. Joe had been 53 when his life was cut short for being in love with a woman who wanted him gone. Please stay tuned for the historical newspaper reports. Okay, the first one we have is Skeleton Found by Children. This is October 30th, 1925 in Los Angeles. A pile of bones unearthed by children in a cellar in South Pasadena may furnish Los Angeles authorities with another murder mystery. Betty and Barbara Graydon, 11 and 9 years, daughters of McCullough Graydon, found what authorities believe may be remnants of a human skeleton in the basement of their home. The bones were half buried in the musty cellar and were revealed to the children when they discovered a secret trapdoor in the palatial home known as Casa de las Flores, which was purchased recently by Graydon's widow. I was unable to find a search on the internet about the uh, mystery of the Casas Casa de las Flores. Uh, there was a whole bunch of things that came up, but none of them related to this. And um, but I was able to find one more article on this case because it's um, awfully interesting and I want to know who, who they found in the cellar. Okay, this one is a continuation of that article and it is October 31st, 1925, Los Angeles. Find bones in cellar, foul play indicated. Mysterious bones believed to be human skeletons, secret passageways, trap doors, and acid-eaten articles Discovered at beautiful Casa de las Flores, South Pasadena Estate of Mrs. Winifred Graydon, baffled authorities yesterday as they attempted to solve a probable murder. The bones were discovered by Betty and Barbara Graydon, schoolgirls, who while playing discovered a secret trap door in a closet. Strange sounds, groans, and moans were reported by neighbors to have been heard coming from the residence some time ago when it was unoccupied. A secret passageway leading from the closet to a hidden cellar disclosed the bones in a blood-stained vest and a physician's apron bearing the mark Marshall Field & Company, Chicago. District Attorney Asa Keys, who visited the bone cellar, said that the discovery of the blood-stained vest indicated a crime. He said a thorough investigation had been ordered. Bones, discovered in cellar, tested, may uncover murder of long ago at Richmond. And this is in the Star Press, Muncie, Indiana, on April 4, 1930. Laboratory experts tonight were examining a number of bones unearthed in a cellar beneath a house here to determine whether they are those of a human or an animal. The bones, along with a rusty butcher knife, some decayed clothing, parts of a pair of shoes, and what appeared to be a wig were discovered by Alonzo Clark, 17, whose family resides in the house. Young Clark said he was searching for a 50-cent piece placed there by William Norman, whose family preceded the Clarks as residents of the structure. Coroner Russell Hyatt said that the bones may prove to only be those of an animal buried there some years ago, and some clothes were discarded by an early occupant, but that in any event the matter would be thoroughly investigated. A physician whose name was not revealed said the bones appeared to have come from the lower part of a human body. The Clarks have lived in the house only a short time. A resident of the neighborhood for many years said that about 20 years ago, the house was occupied by a Polish family, and that one time they had been in trouble with the Detroit Police Department. The house now is the property of W. Bankowski. This one is from June 8, 1906. The Indianapolis Star, and it is Greencastle, Indiana, June 8, 1906. Unearthed Bones of Long-Missing Man skeleton dug up in yard disappearance of william bryan 10 years ago recalled the mysterious disappearance of william bryan a well-known civil war veteran of this place 10 years ago is believed to this morning when a skeleton was unearthed when a skeleton was unearthed in the yard of the house where bryan lived near the skeleton was a rusty axe there's every indication that bryan was murdered the discovery has created a sensation in the town as the fate of the old man has been a topic of discussion which has never lost interest. Coroner King is making an investigation and the authorities hope to bring the murder or murderers to justice. Brian disappeared on the day that he received a large amount of back pension money from an Indianapolis agency. There were many at the time who said that he had been robbed and murdered. Brian had been married to a young woman but a few weeks before some said the marriage was an unhappy one and that Brian had merrily skipped out to get rid of his matrimonial obligations. The young widow, failing to hear anything from her husband, applied for a divorce in the Putnam Circuit Court, which was granted to her on the ground of desertion. Later, she married John Young, who at that time lived near the city. Nothing is known of their present location. While laborers were making an excavation for a new house on the lot at Bloomington and Tennessee Streets, sound familiar? In the southeast part of the city, where the old Briam homestead had been raised, the skeleton was unearthed this morning. One of the workmen had jokingly remarked, What if we should find old man Briam's bones? Everybody had been talking about it in that town, so it makes sense that they're digging up that property, thinking, hey, you know, what what if we find his bones, you know? A few minutes later, the skeleton was discovered about three feet below the surface. The workmen excavated further in the hope of finding the money, but found only the rusty axe with which it is believed Brian was murdered. The skeleton was in a wooden box and the bones crumbled to small places when moved. Coroner King is positive that the skeleton is that of a man. There are some who are inclined to implicate Brian's young wife in the strange disappearance, and it is probable that the authorities will make a search for her in order to ascertain what information she has regarding that supposed tragedy. They say the body could not have been buried in the yard without Brian's wife knowing about it. The Briam Homestead has been deserted for several years. The talk of a murder committed there has tended to keep many away from it. Some even say that the old house was haunted. Okay, this next one is uh, another case, another article in which two kids have found bones. Uh, I don't know what was going on back then, but all these kids are finding some some uh, bones. At least it's just bones and not some horrible decaying body. So. It was July 7th, 1910, Oakland Tribune, and this Oakland, California, July 7th, 1910, and there's a picture of these kids on the front, on this front page, and uh, I'll put that on social media because you got to see it. It's just, it's so cute. Robert Lee and his sister, who unearthed the bones and their gruesome find. And, of course, the boy is just smiling, this big grin. Looks like he's got a black eye. Um, his front teeth are missing. He's, you know, he's pretty young, so he's probably just lost his front teeth and going to get the new grown-up ones. And then his sister's picture being like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. But he's, he's super he's super stoked about his find. You have to see this picture. It's pretty cute. So children dig up horrible signs of crime. Garments of young woman found also lock of hair. Children playing in the backyard of their home at 652 15th Street unearthed what may prove to be a revolting crime committed some six or eight years ago when digging beneath their house this morning. They came across a grave filled with bones, a tattered lime-eaten skirt, a lock of soft blonde hair, and a small discolored glove. That the gruesome find is all is in all probability the decaying evidence of a murder committed years ago is the assertion of the police and in an effort to shed some light on the mystery particles of the clothing, a piece of the hair and a jawbone taken from the hidden crypt have been submitted to Dr. Archibald. The grave had apparently been covered over a row of bricks placed across the top just under the first layer of earth and a heap of tin cans and rubbish having been thrown over the spot. Almost simultaneously with the discovery of the bones and clothing, detectives who were dispatched to the scene following the first report came across a blue bottle, bearing the trademark of a San Francisco chemist, whether or not this contained poison is yet to be confirmed. The bottle has no cork. It was without a cork when found, and though is a quantity of liquid in the bottom, it is possibly that it is merely water which has seeped through the earth. On the other hand, some traces of the contents of the bottle may remain, and in case the nature of the poison can be ascertained by analysts, it may be possible to trace the purchaser through the druggist's records. The remains of what may have been a young and beautiful woman were brought to light by Robert Lee with his sister. The boy had been playing at keeping store in the backyard and running short of make-believe money, had gone beneath the house in search of some small tin disks, which he knew to be there. The residence is built about four feet above the ground at the extreme back end, the space narrowing down toward the front. As the lad made his way along, his foot slipped into the earth, so much softer than the rest that it attracted his attention, and plunging a stout stick, which he had in his hand, into the spot, he came upon a brick, and continuing to dig, unearthed several small bones and then a number of larger bones. His mother is informed. As the bones were dislodged, they were found to be scattered about in small pieces, having been, to all appearances, sawed through in innumerable places. As the investigation proceeded, Miss Lee became frightened, and the police were notified. Corpse of detectives were dispatched to the spot, and the lock of blonde hair, the bottle, and a jawbone were taken out. The presence of the skirt, which, though lime-eaten and rotting to shreds, is cut along youthful lines of a heavy weave of etamine, which was once a bright navy blue with a small, white, interwoven flake. The garment was made over a blue or black. The age makes the color uncertain. Drop skirt of sateen. The overdrop is pleated with the hips to the knees and body body bah it was part of the apparel of a dainty and well-groomed woman the appearance of lime in the pit leads to the belief that the murder if such that there were after slaying and then sawing continued on page three cutting it into small bits the body in the, of his victim buried it beneath the house and to prevent a stench and ensure the rapid decay of the remains sprinkled the hole with corrosive material there are no marks on the clothing which would assist in identification the bottle which bears the inscription blown in glass, Dickey, Pioneer, 1850, San Francisco, being the only clue of value unearthed so far. The house beneath which the bones were found is owned by George A. Douglas, an employee of the Western Sugar Refining Company of San Francisco. Douglas, who lives on on that side of the bay, asserts he bought the house a little more than four years ago from Jefferson Dill, and that since it came into the possession, tenants have changed frequently. The present occupants having living there since the first of the year. That is the end of the historical portion. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please say hi on social media. Um, again, you can reach us at, email is host at com. Website is cherryavenuetruecrime.com. And uh, you can also support us on patreon.com at patreon.com slash cherryavenuetruecrime. I am now going to the exciting portion where I go over all of my sources but they are some good ones so you might want to check them out. There is a book out that I haven't read but there are articles published about it that says it's very good and it's about Joe uh, Terracone murder. It's called Terracone, A Death on Canyon Road. There is um, a episode from the Oxygen channel, um, a series called Buried in the Backyard the episode is named House on Canyon Road, and that is all about that murder. Again, there is the Ann Rule book, Don't Look Behind You, and I recommend every single Ann Rule book there is. Um, I also used Wikipedia, um, seattlepi.com, and it was the Como TV staff that it was accredited to, law.justia.com, uh, article called Aloof Girlfriend Gets Life for Murder Dismemberment, written by Adam Lynn. Uh, L-Y-N-N, The News Tribune, Olympian.com. And Sean Robinson of The News Tribune wrote an article called Police Crack 30-Year-Old Murder, Anchorage Daily News.